Welcome to ReChurch. I'm Marshall Fant, the Director of Church Consulting and Strategic Planning for Gospel Fellowship Association Missions. My purpose is to encourage pastors and church leaders as you refocus, renew, and revitalize your churches. We've established this podcast to offer practical tips and suggestions as you equip disciples to make disciples. This is Marshall Fant with GFA Missions ReChurch. So glad today to be addressing a topic that I have two special guests to talk through. The first is Pastor Jonathan Threlfall, or Dr. Jonathan Threlfall. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, good to be here. And tell everybody where you pastor and a little bit about you and your family. Yeah, I pastor in Concord, New Hampshire, at a church called Trinity Baptist Church. I've been there since October of 2018. And uh, yeah, my family and I are thrilled to be here. I just finished my PhD in apologetics and worldviews in May of 2018, so just coming off of that academic degree. And I am 35 years old. I think you asked me a little earlier to share my age, yeah. and that kind of helps you place where I am demographically. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's one reason I wanted you on here. And Marshall, mm -hmm. introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Marshall Fant uh, as well, but I'm the fourth. And I'm in Rock Hill, South Carolina at Harvest Baptist Church. And I've been here on staff since 2009, but I assumed the senior pastor role in 2017. And, and like Jonathan, I'm also 35 years old. Yeah. Cool. Good so age. Same. Yeah. yeah, it's a great age, right? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the yeah. reasons I wanted to interview both of you, I had the privilege of sitting on both your ordination councils. So I know mm, where you mm -hmm. are theologically for your generation. So our topic today is social justice. Right. And I think Marshall said it well. Marshall, how did you talk about the people or maybe... A little scared yeah. to talk about this? I think this is one of those topics that is, is scares you if you are to talk about it in a public setting. And I would consider this a public setting. You know, we're talking about something that is, is a hot button issue for a lot of people. Because mm -hmm. the response from people who um, buy into this kind of thinking or have been persuaded by social justice um, theology or philosophy is very often anger towards you if you disagree with them. There's a, there's a real hesitancy from people to disagree or to, at least that's, that's the perspective I get mm -hmm. from people and, mm -hmm. and the hesitancy to deal with it because it is such a, a lightning rod. All right, so let's, let's define it. Uh, Jonathan, you want to give an input on your readings, how you would define the current movement of what we call social justice, just a brief definition, a working definition? Yeah, I could give a, a shot at it. I don't at all consider myself to be an expert on where it is currently, but I, I suppose it depends on your context as to how you would define social justice. You know, some people would see it as an attempt to achieve justice among people in terms of economic mm -hmm. uh, equality or, uh, you know, people from different classes, whether or not they were privileged in their upbringing or underprivileged. They would see social justice as an attempt to bring some parity in those things. So mm -hmm. uh, that, that's kind of what I would understand to be the meaning of social justice, that attempt to bring people of varying socioeconomic levels to, to equality okay. uh, in some cases. Yes, well said. Marshall, you want anything to that? Yeah, it, it's not just economics, obviously. I mean, I agree with Jonathan. You're not going to, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in this in any way. But I kind of follow a lot of the arguments that happen, whether they're online or, um, you know, with, with people we talk about. I worked in college ministry. It was very popular to talk about these kinds of things among college students as well. And um, this kind of is, to, from my perspective, is basically born out of a kind of a postmodernist mindset 
in a lot of ways where there are people who have been affected, who have been victimized, mm-hmm. uh, either historically or even personally, or they are perceived to have been victimized. And because of that, they have gained some sort of position to be able to speak on an issue. And that is, uh, that is somewhat uh, some of social justice, some of the uh, effects of social justice, perhaps. But, right. you know, I'm not opposed to justice. I don't think any Bible-believing pastor would be opposed to, to God's justice. We want to see God's justice done, but it seems like the danger, of course, is when we adopt worldly perspectives on justice in exclusion to biblical justice, we might end up actually doing harm rather than doing good and actually ignoring God's justice is, is the potential danger there. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the cry from pastors, I believe, ought to be to just define our terms. Let's talk about biblical justice and, and you know, biblical repentance and truth and matters like this rather than being caught up in who can speak Right. And, uh, and who has a power in this particular situation, or making uh, these, we're talking about sometimes um, injustices that have not been even within a person's lifetime. We're talking okay. about sometimes injustices from years before a person was born. That, All right, uh, let's hold that thought. All right, so Jonathan, you and Marshall, both 35. Yeah. Uh, both of you have seminary degrees and beyond uh, with Jonathan. And so the kind of way I want to frame this is, that especially I appreciate your generation because you're trying to impact the culture. Right. Okay, so as believers we are. We know, you know, in Sermon Mount Christ says we're to be salt and light. And so to impact our culture, there's got to be a point where we understand our culture. Yes. All right, so I want to frame it and kind of I want to follow what Marshall just said. So I think, again, within social justice, we can talk about economics as well as maybe the feminism or the LGBTQ or progressive immigration or any of these areas where I think the key word is victim is what we're trying to work through here. So the two way I want to frame this is for you and Marshall, Jonathan Threlfall and Marshall Fant, one pastoring in South Carolina, one pastoring in New England. How do you deal with this first publicly in your preaching? Because I've heard you both preach. You're both expositional. Mm-hmm. You're careful in the way you handle the Word. Mm-hmm. And then I want to move to if you're doing some personal counseling, and this is brought up. So first, let's talk on the public realm. So Jonathan, how would you even work this into a sermon, or would you not? Or how would you address this within your church? Yeah, I think you definitely would especially since social justice, a lot of the questions swirling around social justice are related to the question of what is the church's responsibility toward the community that we live in. And undoubtedly, part of the church's responsibility is to follow Jesus. You know, we're called to live Christ-like lives, and Jesus had compassion on people that were underprivileged, that had uh, physical needs. And part of what it means to live for the city to come is to not live in this world as if it's our home, but to apply the values of the coming kingdom to the present kingdom, uh, which is kind of a razor's edge, right? Because you have, on the one hand, we are we are residents, but we're alien residents. Mm-hmm. So we don't get our values from this world, but we do the best for this world when we live for the world to come. And that's kind of how I frame it as a pastor to my people because I want to shape, help shape their identity as exiles, right, in this, in this world, yeah. and helping them understand the good that we attempt to do for this world, for the city that we live in, 
is not out of any sense that there will be ultimate justice applied in this world. But because we are those who have experienced forgiveness and restoration and redemption ourselves, it is natural for us to want to turn around and just demonstrate an outpouring of that to other people. And uh, that would be the way I would frame it pastorally. Uh, In fact, just this coming Sunday, we're having an emphasis on organizations within our city that do concrete helping type Mm. uh, things for our people. There's a homelessness crisis up here in Concord, New Hampshire. When you're not living in a home within four walls, it's very, very cold. You can't just sleep in a park. (laughs) So this is being recorded in January. So that's right. Yes. Yes. And I just let's see. Last week, I drove over to a homeless shelter. There's 40 beds in there. And the organizer of this homeless shelter was saying, hey, we, are, have, we have a shortage here. There are too many people that need a place to sleep. We need volunteers to help uh, even around the clock, making sure that they're okay, mm-hmm. organizing clothes. There's, there's needs all around us. Right. And as a Christian, we can't say, wait, hey, our only responsibility is to preach the gospel, uh, whereas that is the primary thing we're called to do, yet out of that overflows a desire to help and do good yeah. for others. Good. So, Marshall, what about you framing this publicly? I think that's excellent or well said. And we all likewise believe that it's important to minister not only to the spiritual needs of people, but to minister to those who have financial needs to to meet yeah. people and um, and help them wherever they might be, especially that they've been disadvantaged. As far as public preaching or public talking about social justice issues, I, I'm hesitant to to criticize movements, especially political movements from the pulpit that are that are not really related to the church's direct work. Right, so right. there's a lot of talk about you know Marxism and capitalism and things like that, which I believe there are some biblical you know biblical. I, I do think the Bible speaks to private property, etc. But I don't preach a lot on that. I would find the setting much better in a class setting or in a personal discussion, just so I'm not misunderstood and I don't end up distracting people. I think another really important thing we got to remember is that there's also reaction, at least, you know, I'm in South Carolina and we have a lot of conservative people here and there's a general reaction against social justice thinking, which tends to be in the political left side of the politics Mm -hmm. uh, line when it comes to solutions. So you have compassion, but compassion is only compassion if it's following this program or if it's doing this left-leaning thing. And so the danger, I think, is that if we speak too much against this in a very harsh way or if you know if we come down on it too hard, people might actually begin to think, well, I don't want to be accused of being engaged in social, you know, that's not what I'm called to do. I, you know, I don't want to be um, being wrapped up in that. I need to be right. doing just gospel work. Right, so well, there's all kinds of You mentioned the word gospel. So let's talk about part of social justice can redefine the gospel or add to the gospel. Jonathan, you want to comment anything on that, of making sure we keep the gospel clear and not allow the gospel to be redefined uh, within right. this parameter? Yeah, I, I think it can be a false dichotomy between either emphasizing gospel ministry or emphasizing social work as if the two were somehow at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. I think because of our ideological history, the history of even theology and movements, people are really afraid of Walter Rauschenbusch, you know, of his yeah. social gospel. And that movement came out of an undermining of the belief that the Bible had any real validity, uh, the truth of the gospel had any real mm-hmm. validity for today. Mm-hmm. So the thinking was, okay, what's left of Christianity if not just a set of good morals uh, without 
the real truth, being grounded in the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think out of that grew the, the social gospel in which it's stripped down to just do what Jesus would have done rather than what Jesus has done in terms of his redeeming human beings into a right relationship with God. So I think it's possible to swing, to overcorrect, and out of fear, dismiss or disparage the uh, responsibility of preaching the gospel and emphasizing good works. I want the people in my city, when they see the kinds of things my church does, the people my church do, I want them to say things like this, who is your king? Like, he must be a really good king. Yeah. Uh, who is your leader? Take us to your leader. I'm referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. And the things that we do would commend what we believe. Right. And also, I think, Marshall, you want to comment on, you know, if we have to take on ownership of past sins of other people, how does that yeah. pervert the gospel? Well, I, when we talk about social justice, I think we are all for lifting up the downtrodden and doing what Christ did by having the little children come unto him, the weakest, you know, if we are to lift those up. But the danger is not there. That's not the danger. That's not where there's any disagreement, I don't find. What, I, what I'm concerned about in this movement is much more the calling of people to repent for sins in which they did not commit. Now, we have some kinds of, uh, there are things of corporate sinning in the Scripture. We see that. But I'm very nervous about that. I don't think it's a biblical model for us to to call people to repent for things of which they had nothing to do, of which they do not condone, and they can do you not, think of an uh, illustration of that you could share? Well, yeah, I think I think the most obvious one that comes, especially I mean, being in the South, we get a lot of talk about segregation and about slavery in the past. I was not even alive when segregation was happening. I was born in 1984. I, of course, was not alive during times of slavery, and and I see pretty regularly online there are calls for the quote unquote white American church to repent of the sin of of segregation or such. And, you know, are there churches that probably need to repent of that? Yeah, there were leaders who who were engaged in that, absolutely. But this model of that is a dangerous thing because I think what it does, and I'd I'd love to hear Jonathan's input on this because he's he's very read up on a lot of these kinds of matters. I think what it does from my perspective and in dealing with people more one-on-one, I've seen not in the slavery context, but in other contexts, I've seen where it can take away the need for repentance if you say, well, I'm, especially for the victim. So the victim feels a sense of righteous indignation and even almost like they had deserve to have anger hmm. and deserve some sort of recompense for their wrong, whether it's perceived it. or real. Yeah. Jonathan, and, you're, I'm and sorry. The person, yeah. And well, and the person who, who is wronged or is perceived to have wrong must pay out or must repent, even if they didn't themselves do anything. You know, it's an interesting dynamic, and it's one that perverts the ability of someone to actually ever be forgiven. Mm. Or, mm. you know, that that's that's a danger, I see. Well, that's well said. Jonathan, you want to add anything <clears throat> yeah. to that? Well, I would say there is some merit in what Marshall is saying, in that you can end up watering down the meaning of repentance by repenting, making repentance all about what people did that you didn't do. Mm. And I think Mm -hmm. there can be some hypocrisy in that. However, I I think it's easy for us to swerve the opposite direction and and kind of dig in our heels and not recognize or be quick to recognize the real wrongs of the past. Right. And and so it could be a matter of real humility in saying, okay, this is not something that I personally did, but it's something I'm going to say, boy, what happened was wrong. That really was wrong. 
Now, I have to admit here something, a little confession. I'm behind in my Robert Murray McShane Bible reading schedule already. <laughs> <and I still laughs> <in January. laughs> so, so I was just reading in Nehemiah 9. <laughs> um, right, and, right. And, and where it says that they confess their sins and the iniquities yeah. of their fathers. Right. And right. there is some biblical precedence to saying our dad's messed up. Yeah. It was wrong. <laughs> and we're going to try to do better with that. Yeah. And so I, I think that we have some biblical precedent for that. And I think and humility I, I, calls for it. I agree. And I guess the distinction I see or the difference I see, and I'd love to tease this out or, or hear exactly what you mean, but like in Nehemiah's situation or, you know, that, that is a, that's a new, they're doing something new. They're coming to right. rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. And there's a real sense of, of something brand new. What, I, what I'm kind of confused about in our current setting is it isn't like we're just coming off of segregation mm. or we're just coming off of something like that or slavery. This has been a long time. And, and like I said, I wasn't even born when this happened. And of course, we can always admit where people in the past, yeah. our past may yeah. have uh, sinned. And I just, I'm curious as to when will it be appropriate to be forgiven and who can forgive? God yeah. forgives, obviously, right. but is, I feel like for a lot of people, they're expecting this groundswell of forgiveness from a people group or from, a, from another organization. Right. I don't know. I'm just curious what, right. you know, maybe we need to talk about something else. Yeah, well, <laughs> about what I'm saying else. is I think all that's well said. I think that the whole thing is we just need to make sure that we do not put people under a burden to repent of sins they did not commit. Mm. And we can say, yes, our fathers, yeah, yeah, okay, but this is who I am before God. Right. And so I guess where I want to shift this now is to the personal level. So when you're discipling somebody or counseling someone and they have bought into this social justice, but they don't see the God is the ultimate perfect God of justice, and they have the victim, you know, that they're a victim of social justice, therefore they're not accountable for their sin. Boy, how do you help someone like that? So Jonathan or Marshall, whoever wants to go first, and I think this is where people really struggle, and this is where you can come along beside them with the Word of God to help them understand the perfect justice of God, and at the same time that they are accountable for their sins. I've never actually counseled someone through your, what you're describing, but we have had conversations with people here at church who have expressed anger at feeling discriminated against. Mm -hmm. I'm going back to racial issues. And I would say that's a really tricky one because whether perceived or real, that's a real discrimination. There needs to be people, you know, shouldn't be doing bigotry at all. But also anger and unrighteous anger or um, sinful anger as expressed sometimes by people also needs to be repented of. Mm. And I don't think our secular culture has any room for that. The victim is perfectly righteous in showing forth anger, and the person who has been victimized can do whatever is necessary because they've been victimized. And the person in power needs to repent or bow before, you know, because of their position or because of their, their wickedness. So I don't yeah. know exactly how I would look to talk about social justice directly with someone one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. But I know yep. that we've had... Jonathan, what about you? That. No, I'm with Marshall on that. I haven't had a counseling situation where someone feels somehow justified in their anger because of thinking themselves as a victim. That's not come across my plate yet. Okay. I do see how that mindset could be detrimental. If someone has been hurt or victimized, forgiveness is a difficult thing. It's a burden. It's mm -hmm. not a one-and-done 
requires that you think about your aggressor or whoever hurt you in a particular forgiving way every time they come to your mind. And uh, that's not an easy thing. But I've not had that specific counseling yeah. situation. Okay. Well, I think my wife and I have had several, but I think the, the way I wanted to go was First Peter chapter 2, regardless of the perceived offense or real offense, either one, okay? We have the example of Christ who never sinned, who was the perfect God-man, but yet it says in First Peter 2, if what glory is it that when, if you're buffeted your fault, you take it patiently, but if you'd suffer for it, take it patiently, this is such with God for Christ also suffer, leaving us an example. And I love that word example. It's, it's a life we can trace over or write over, that we would fall in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jonathan, you were talking about we want people to see Christ through us as we live out our life. Right, And I think that people, whether it is perceived injustice or real injustice, I think as ministers of the gospel, we always can go to the life of Christ right. and show them that we don't have to respond in a sinful way. Right. Yeah. All right. We're about out of time. So how about each of you just giving a couple of comments? And boy, this has been kind of a random, random yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, 30,000 feet to ground right. zero back to 30,000 feet. I mean, I yep. know you're both extremely busy. So again, thanks for your time. Oh, sure. Uh, Jonathan, you got any closing comments you want to make on this or how you would encourage someone to think through this? Yeah, just in closing, you know, some thoughts would be we could easily swing the other direction and dismiss the value of trying to help our cities or the community because we're afraid of the social gospel or compromising our mission. I think that we should do as much good as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And I think that commends the gospel. I think that we should balance that with this conviction that true justice, ultimate justice will never happen until the Prince of Peace waves his scepter of righteousness and makes all things new. And we live in a place where as Peter writes at the close of his second epistle, where righteousness dwells. Like, that's that's true justice, and our hope is in that ultimately. And meanwhile, we do as much as we can as we be careful to guard our central mission, that is to proclaim the gospel. Good. Well said. Marshall? Yeah, I think that the importance of the supremacy of God's Word in all of our decisions and in our definitions as we look at what justice is and as God is the one who ultimately uh, meet out justice, and uh, we will not have a utopian earth here until he declares it so, until mm. he makes it so. And the poor will always be with us. We can help take care of the poor in a good way. Uh, difference. I would just urge anyone who's listening to this who is far to the left of me, just to have understanding that a difference in perspective on how to solve these problems does not mean that we disagree or that there is a problem. I think that's another, you know, there are definitely things that are a burden to me when it comes to uh, people who are suffering. We may have differences in opinion on how to solve that. Okay. And I believe that God's justice is that, you know, each person will be treated equally. I had written down on my notes here before we met, the, the verse that always perplexed me out of Leviticus uh, 19. If you read it, it, it's very interesting. It says that God tells us in Leviticus 19.15 that the, there was a law that they were not to pervert justice. And one of the ways that we can pervert justice is actually to be partial to the poor or to be partial to the rich. Mm, yeah. Whether it's to one way or the other, and we ought to call sin what it is, regardless of who's sinning, mm. and 
to be not partial just because someone's poor don't give them the benefit of the doubt just because someone's rich don't give them the benefit of the doubt we are to mm. to do the ministry of christ that he's called us to do without partiality and and, and that's what we're called to do that's yeah, how we're and, to do it. and yeah. in god's perfect justice all those that call upon the lord jesus christ shall be saved cleansed right. redeemed and in god's perfect justice all our sins were placed upon his son Yes, that's and right. this this is God's justice, and what a message of hope and of love that uh, we have the opportunity to proclaim to people, and we should not be bashful to cover everything in love, and tell them of the love of Christ, who did nothing wrong, but yet He was crucified. That's right. All right, Jonathan, thanks so much. I know hey, you're busy. Hey, thank you. This yeah, has Marshall, been great. Thanks for your time again. It's been thank with Jonathan Threlfall, pastor of Trinity Baptist Church in Concord, New Hampshire. And uh, Marshall Fant, the fourth pastor of Harvest Baptist Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. If you have any questions for me, you can email me at mfant at gfamissions.org. I will put you in touch with Marshall and Jonathan again. I appreciate them so much because they're the next generation. This is the generation they're ministering among. And I really appreciate the wisdom God has given them. So, Marshall, Jonathan, thank you. Hey, thank we you. hope it's to do great. another one soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to ReChurch, a podcast of Gospel Fellowship Association Missions. If you would like more information about our ministry or how we may assist you and your church, visit us at gfamissions.org consulting.